Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thank you so much for listening to us and thank you for your patience as we come back from our hiatus. Yeah, it's been kind of... One week since you looked at me. It's been like a rough summer. Like, because... So you were sick for a bit in like late June, I think. And then you had heat stroke. Yeah. And then we moved. Yeah. And then we got COVID. Yeah. Like, I think before this summer, we had maybe only missed like one week or two weeks uh, total in our uh, like five years of doing this. And then this summer, things just got all out of control. (laughs) But uh, yeah, we, we had COVID and now we're, we're better. Yay. For the record, in case you can hear it, in the background is our dishwasher going. Uh, it, it was too far in to cancel it and too long to wait for it to finish for us to start recording. So now you get to be serenaded by our dishwasher. We have a dishwasher now is the thing and we didn't before. So this timing out This isn't me trying the... to like humble break or anything no, about us having a I dishwasher. Just, I just mean that like we we don't we aren't used to like timing out the dishwasher with like doing the podcast basically. Yeah. We don't know what we're doing is what we're saying. How are you feeling, Sarah? I am doing all right. We are just over a week from testing or at least I am from testing negative after having covid. And still dealing with some of the brain fog and definitely some of the lung stuff. It doesn't help that Calgary has been inundated with wildfire smoke, either from BC and or Montana, depending on the way that the wind blows. But overall, I'm doing all right. How are you? Yeah, much the same. Um, I have been COVID-free since, I want to say like Tuesday... And it's Sunday when we're recording this, so less than a week. Um, I've got a lingering cough, which the smoke is exacerbating. So I'll try my best, uh, you know, to keep my voice going through this episode. But I'm I'm not sick. I can. It's like it doesn't feel like the cough you have when you're sick. It feels like the cough you have when you know the air sucks. <laughs> that it does. Mm-hmm. Well. Get our minds off of our lungs. Let's talk about skulls. What are we watching today? Well, Sarah, today we're watching The Four Skulls of Jonathan Drake from 1959, directed by Edward L. Kahn. Mm. Uh, so this is um, like an indie horror uh, produced by Robert E. Kent, uh, an independent producer who had also produced It, The Terror from Beyond Space. Which one was that? That's the one that's like Alien. Where they're on the ship that has like multiple levels. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. I was thinking it was um the one where the creature was designed by the chick who designed You're Creature thinking, from the Black Lagoon. Yeah. That's um it came from outer space. Yeah. Uh, this is it. Terror from beyond space. Robert E. Kent also produced Curse of the Faceless Man. Mm-hmm. Um, and those two movies were like a double feature that were both written by Jerome Bixby and both directed by Edward L. Kahn. It 
ranks at number 43 on the list currently, while Curse of the Faceless Man ranks number 225. <laughs> so One of these is not like the other. Yeah. Um, so Edward Elkan returns to direct Four Skulls of Jonathan Drake, uh, which he shot back to back with a science fiction film called Invisible Invaders. Um, so that the two of those would be packaged as a double feature. Uh, the Four Skulls of Jonathan Drake is the A picture. Invisible Invaders is the B picture. Um, Invisible Invaders is fairly noteworthy for the fact that like the invaders you see, they're aliens from space. They're invisible. So, so it's super cheap. It's super cheap. Yeah, exactly. Both films would have their own writers this time around. No Jerome Bixby. Um, so Jonathan Drake was written by a writer named Orville H. Hampton. And Hampton was a prolific screenwriter of B-movies and television episodes. His greatest accomplishment is generally considered to have been the screenplay to the 1964 drama One Potato, Two Potato, an interracial love story that was nominated for an Academy Award. Oh. Yeah. I've never heard of it, so. Yeah, it's, um, I think, kind of, like, been overshadowed by, like, the later sort of Sidney Poitier kind of like guess who's coming to dinner sort of sure. movies. Um, Cause it wasn't like a big studio picture. So the four skulls of Jonathan Drake um, are from what I can understand shrunken heads. Oh, that's a misnomer then. Cause shrunken heads don't have skulls. So this movie mostly I think takes place in Ecuador and kind of, revolves around like the whole like witch doctor head shrinking thing um with uh the javaro people called out specifically i don't really know anything about the real people or culture or history behind like actual head shrinkers so why don't you fill us in sarah sure i do think as far as the podcast goes the only time that we've had a movie that has like shrinking heads or shrunken heads in it has been Beetlejuice. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Beetlejuice has sort of a, a, a gag around that. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think is funny. Um, so the people that are kind of known for um, shrunken heads are called the Shivaro rather than Jivaro. Uh, the Shivaran people live in kind of northern Peru and kind of the south-southeast portion of Ecuador, mainly along that last bit of the Amazon River. Hmm. Um, at that point, it's kind of called the uh, Marañón River. And the Shivaran people are made up kind of like the four largest groups of them would be the Shuar, Ashuar, Umabisa, and Aguaruna. So named based on the rivers that sprout off from that main river. Got it. Now, the Javaran people believe that all animate and inanimate objects hold souls. And if you have souls, you have power. Hmm. So, for example, gardening is actually very integral to their culture. Um, and it's seen as like a very spiritual thing because you are interacting with nature. You are encouraging these objects to grow through songs and chants. And it's actually a very like spiritual process okay. for them. On the flip side, the other part of their culture is very much tied to violence and killing 
as a means of gathering souls and power. Sure. So people, for example, aren't born with this certain kind of powerful soul called Avrutam. This powerful soul is gained through that expression of violence and specifically of killing. And actually, um, young boys, as a rite of passage in puberty, go out hunting with their father and uncles and everything to go and get their first kill and therefore gain Avatam. So you like level up your soul by killing and then presumably by killing people with leveled up souls that, that levels your soul up even more. Yeah. That's, that's a very um, video game way of looking at it. Uh, the thing to keep in mind though, is that you hold Avatam for a limited time after around like a period of like, let's say five years, mm. um, it starts to wander the forest at night and can be stolen. So you have to keep leveling up. Got it. Like Goku. Now, someone who has Arutam, when they are killed, um, there is a concern that that Arutam will turn vengeful mm. and hurt the killer. And so that spirit, that soul, the Arutam, is contained within the person's shrunken head. And so therefore, it's not so much the shrunken head that is a trophy, but rather the soul that is captured inside the shrunken head. Got it. And these would be used for trophies, sure, but for trade as well, because it's not so much like, you know, you put it up on your mantelpiece kind of thing, because the Arutam only stays for around four to five years, right? So you can pass it off, you can use it to trade. So uh, it's, it's souls as currency. Yeah. Kept within heads. Yeah. Got it. Now, this next part I had no idea about. Jivaroan people, they live in a pretty remote area mm. of like the Amazon rainforest. Um, they had faced off against like Incas from like taking them as slaves, um, faced off against Spanish conquistadors, um, and they're still there. In the mid 1800s, to early 1900s, they started meeting um, other European merchants and traders, and therefore trade with like the international community increased. And these Europeans saw these shrunken heads as exotic curiosities. Sure. And were willing to trade like a lot for a single head. Right. Which rose, you know, supply and demand, demand increases. Sure. So you need to meet that supply. Right. While previously these shrunken heads would be, you know, after warring with a, a tribe down the, I was going to say down the street, but I guess like down the river and seen as like a ceremonial type of thing, maybe a trade minor type of thing. Suddenly the practice of headhunting became very popular for the Javaran people because uh, they can trade a single head for a fucking rifle. Right. So... These heads, which store souls as a form of currency, experienced inflation, essentially, where like or, or like reverse inflation, yeah, I feel or like, like it's the, reverse inflation. the buying power of a single head went up. But then that means that you want more heads. So you're going to flood the market with. OK, the yeah. economics of this are fascinating. Right. Although they do, I think what you're leading towards involve like 
killing a lot of people. Oh, yeah. No, you, totally. You generally don't survive having your, your head shrunken, I'm pretty sure. No, pretty sure. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Jivaroan tribes would go and, like, attack fellow tribes, but then they would also attack, like, people who were wandering the Amazon rainforest gathering wood. Hmm. Like, um, people doing other kinds of trades, like looking for rubber trees. Like, sure. just anyone, kill them, get their head to trade. Therefore, that fear of headhunting parties became um, kind of solidified as like, that's just part of the Amazon experience. <laughs> sure. <laughs> now, um, by the mid-1900s, that can, had kind of settled down. It's st- It was still going on, but it wasn't yeah. as common. Cabinet of curiosities weren't as big of a trend in Europe anymore. Well, um, yes, but also a flood of uh, fraudulent heads mm. made from like animal skins and um, if you ever saw like a shrunken head that had its torso attached, that's definitely fraudulent. Um, anyways, by the mid 1900s, when missionaries started coming to the Javaran people, they weren't super successful, these missionaries, but it did lead to the Javaran people, these multiple tribes that I kind of described as, um, they had been very like nomadic, separate from each other. They came together to form, um, what they called centros, which are basically groups of like these individual tribes in order to bargain with the government, with corporations Mm. and kind of form for lack of a better word, like their own political structure, even though it wasn't like politics, it was just to have a representative body. They unionized. Yeah. They unionized. There we go. (laughs) That kind of got solidified in 1964. And that's, that's still, how they how they're doing things? Sure, but I'm sure you're wondering like how is a shrunken head made? Yes, absolutely, yeah. I am. Because um, I had no idea uh, before doing this research. So a shrunken head, uh, or um, as it's called in Javaroan language, um, tisansa, they are made by you kill a person, mm-hmm. they'd behead that person, and then carefully, basically separate the skin from the skull. From like uh, the neck all the way over, including the the face, the scalp, the ears, the entire gotcha. skin surface. Yeah, you're trying to just sort of, you know, take the skull pull. apart. <laughs> what I sort of imagine is someone like with this beheaded head, and then kind of like gripping it by like the hair and just sort of pulling <laughs> the whole flesh off of the skull like it's a halloween mask and you have the skull (laughs) left behind and then the like dangling face in the other hand yeah that's actually a good way to think about it it's a much more delicate process than that but that is the end goal once you have the flappy skin Mm -hmm. um you remove the fat that's in there uh and then you put um some seeds in the nose to help it maintain its shape you sew the mouth shut and then you put the skin over a wooden ball so it can kind of maintain its shape and then you boil it to kind of preserve it um and the the solution it's boiled in is filled with herbs that have a lot of tannins so think like red wine okay (laughs) once it is dried using hot rocks and sand the process of molding continues to make sure it maintains its shape and then finally the skin is rubbed with ash and charcoal which gives it its kind of like darker toned look and it this is kind of like the key part with the ash and charcoal because that is what keeps the avenging soul from escaping Mm. the head 
and that is how it's made. Okay. Um, so, so the shrinking is, is sort of part and parcel with like boiling it. It's basically like if you put, I don't know, like a leather jacket in the laundry, it would shrink. Yeah. It's just the process of turning skin into leather basically. Right. Hence also why there's no skulls in the head. Right. Which I, I didn't know before doing this research. Yeah. I mean, I suppose to like shrink a skull, you would need, you know, like magic. <laughs> The title role here of Jonathan Drake is portrayed by Edward Franz Schmidt, who was born in 1902 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And he started acting while he was attending the University of Wisconsin and then performed on stage in Chicago and then New York um, as Edward Franz. So he, he dropped the Schmidt part of his name. He appeared on Broadway in the 1930s and 40s before making his motion picture debut in 1948 a prolific character actor, he appeared on film and TV until his death in 1983. He was uh, Dr. Stern in The Thing from Another World, and his final role uh, would be in the Twilight Zone movie in 1983. Okay. The film's villain is played by Charles Henry Powell Daniel, who was born in 1894 in England and worked under the name Henry Daniel. Because, you know, you don't need two first names and two last names. You just... Just, just you know, mm. only need the two. He began acting on the British stage in 1913, making his way to Broadway in 1921, and began appearing in films in 1929, uh, where he was most commonly typecast in villainous roles. Some of his most notable roles include Sir Robert Cecil in The Private Lives of Elizabeth and Essex in 1938, Lord Wolfingham in The Seahawk in 1940, Garbage in <laughs> The Great Dictator in 1940. Amazing. Brocklehurst in Jane Eyre in 1943. Toddy in The Body Snatcher in 1945. Moriarty in The Woman in Green in 1945. And many, many more before he passed away from heart failure in 1963. So we've seen him on the podcast before, I yes. believe. Um, he is not a person of color. No, but his character isn't either. Oh, okay. I, okay. That being said, uh, there is a, uh, Javaro person in the story. Uh, his name is Zutai and he is of course played by a white actor, Paul Wexler of Portland, Oregon. In fact, <laughs> the whitest place. <laughs> uh, Wexler was a prolific character actor thanks to his deep voice and tall stature. And his career includes serving as a character model for the animators of 101 Dalmatians. For a dog? No, for okay. one of the people. Okay, well. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, playing uh, the role of Kenneth Drake, who is the brother of Jonathan Drake, uh, is another familiar face to us, 71-year-old English actor Paul Cavanaugh, who we've seen in films like The Strange Case of Dr. Rx in 1942, The Man in Half Moon Street in 1945, The Strange Door, Son of Dr. Jekyll, and Bride of the Gorilla, all in 1951, House of Wax in 1953, The Man Who Turned to Stone and She-Devil in 1957. He would pass away of heart failure in 1964. So some veterans of horror. Yeah. Or like... Veterans of B-movies. Vet yeah, exactly. Veteran character actors. Uh, makeup and the special props for the film, such as the shrunken heads, were created by former guerrilla actor Charles Gemera. So The Four Skulls of Jonathan Drake was released on a double feature with Invisible Invaders by United Artists on May 15th, 1959. 
Contemporary reviews were lukewarm, uh, while modern reviews are mixed. Okay. And Scream Factory released this film on Blu-ray in 2017. Okay, so that will be how we are watching it. Folks, hopefully you can find a copy to watch along. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Four Skulls of Jonathan Drake from 1959, directed by Edward L. Kahn. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene, everybody. We just finished watching The Four Skulls of Jonathan Drake from 1959, directed by Edward L. Kahn. Sarah, what'd you think? Um, neat idea. Mm. Poor execution. Mm-hmm. But, like, it was all right. It was like an hour and ten minutes. Yeah, I think more or less I agree with your assessment. This isn't, like good enough to recommend and it's not bad enough to get worked up about yeah it's not even like a scared to death situation of like finding something to laugh at yeah it's just there kind of time out of your life it's sort of one of those movies i feel like where not a lot happens and yet it takes forever to happen well you had things pegged 15 minutes in yeah and all the characters should have too But everybody in this movie took stupid pills so that the movie could last for 70 minutes or however long it is. Yeah. Why don't you tell us about the story or what there is, what little (laughs) there is of it? Sure. So I'll go through things, but I will like do like a point form bit within it to kind of point out like here are neat things that happen, but I'm not going to go into detail about or give context around because they're just neat things that happen. Yeah, this is also one of those movies where, like, there's four locations and the characters just sort of bounce back and forth between them, so... Including a mausoleum on the grounds that has electricity in it Mm -hmm. with, like, a switch for the light. Mm -hmm. It's very comical. Anyways, so we see that there is a Dr. Jonathan Drake uh, from the title... And he has visions of skulls haunting him. Um, And this is an older man, I think is important to mention. He is uh, around 60 years old. He is growing concerned about his brother, Kenneth. Because um, Jonathan's daughter, Allison, has uh, a phone message from Ken saying like, Oh, the Zansa are coming. (laughs) Um, Now they say Zansa, uh, which is a mispronunciation of Tzansa. Uh, which is the um, Jivaroan word for the shrunken head. I'm honestly just impressed that they had the word in here. Yeah. They also say Jivaroan and Jivara and stuff, but they mispronounce that too, but not as poorly. So, you know, someone did research. That's neat. Yeah. Um, Anyways, so it's a two-day train ride for Jonathan to get to his brother Ken and as he is traveling there, we see that Kenneth is attacked by a Jivaroan man um, who, you know, pricks him with this stiletto, which is like a long skinny dagger. Um, and this man is about to, like, 
cut off the head as well, but he's interrupted before he's able to do that. But we see that he manages to come back during the funeral services. Also arriving right as the funeral services are happening is Jonathan. And he opens the casket to find his brother's body mutilated in the sense that his head has been taken. Now, during this, while John was traveling, Allison phoned ahead uh, for the police to check in on her uncle. Um, And this cop is Lieutenant Jeff Rowan. Now, Jeff arrives right as uh, Kenneth's body is being taken out. He meets uh, the family physician, Dr. Bradford, who's like, yeah, it was natural causes. I didn't do an autopsy or anything, but it's a family, uh, not tradition. Um, It's hereditary. It's a hereditary heart thing that all the men seem to die when they're 60, specifically. Yeah, of like presumably heart failure. Yeah. But now that a uh, corpse has been mutilated, Lieutenant Jeff is back on the case uh, and is dedicated to finding who mutilated this case before it happens again. (laughs) Jeff also happens to meet family friend Dr. Emil Zurich, who studies Amazonian tribes and is like a college professor and stuff. Um, So it ends up being no surprise to us, the audience, when we cut to see Zurich expert in Amazonian head shrinking magic stuff, uh, doing said head shrinking to Kenneth's disembodied head. Um, we also see that that uh, Jivaroan man is here. His name is Zutai, um, and he has uh, his lips sewn shut as if he his head is like a shrunken head, but it's like normal size. Yeah, and he also has like his skin texture is like as if he was a shrunken head, but he's just a dude. Yeah, he's just a dude. I mean, he's not just a dude, but you know, <laughs> that comes later. And Zurich explains, next we'll get Jonathan, and that will be the last of the line of the male drakes. Which is funny, because a drake is what you call a male duck. Huh. You didn't know that? Oh. You learned something new. Okay, so they attempt to kill Jonathan first by having, um, you know, same kind of thing that they did with Ken. Zutai goes in to the mansion, and he tries to prick Jonathan. And he does manage to do that, but again, cutting off the head is interrupted by the butler. They, through detective work, um, Jeff manages to realize that uh, he, Jonathan's been poisoned by a specific kind of poison from the Amazon. So then they get him cured and he's, uh, Jonathan is just in shock now. Curari is the type of poison. Yes. While Zutai is running away, uh, Jeff does get off a couple shots and he finds that um, he did shoot the guy, but he kept going. And Zutai also left behind a sandal, which turns out to be made of human flesh. Well, skin. Human skin. Mm -hmm. We also, during this time, learn more about the curse on the Drake family. Jonathan, to his daughter, Allison, explains that back in 1873, our ancestor Wilfred Drake led an Amazon expedition, and his Swiss agent was taken by the Jivaroan tribe. Um, So... Drake made it to the tribe, discovered his Swiss agent was killed and decapitated, and so he killed every man and male child in this tribe, except for the witch doctor who escaped. And Drake was like, well, we finished massacring this village, time to head home. 
while the witch doctor cursed the Drake line for all the male Drakes to die at the age of 60 exactly. So that's the curse on the family. We see that there's a second attempt on John's life, and that is through a vision from Zurich to John um, of like skulls approaching him um, in an attempt to cause a heart attack. Instead, Jonathan is just in shock and he is taken to hospital. To lure Jonathan out of the hospital, Zurich and Zutai kidnap Allison, because why is a woman here unless she is to be put into danger? Mm-hmm. Um, we see after the commercial break that Zurich has told Allison, like, yes, I'm doing the head shrinking that you've just seen me do it to Dr. Bradford for reasons that I won't go into. And, um, now I'm going to do it to your dad. Just then Jonathan comes in, having tracked Zurich back to his house and explains that, like, I know how to fuck your whole plan up, Zurich by shooting myself in the head and destroying my skull, because then you won't be able to complete the curse and complete the set of the four skulls. Yeah, so the four skulls being its... um... Yes, good, thank you. Um, uh, Wilfred Drake, uh, Jonathan's dad, whose name I don't remember, um, Kenneth, and then Jonathan. Yeah, so um, basically Zurich's been doing the head shrinking thing and keeping the shrunken heads, but the skulls on their own have been like returned mysteriously to the Drake vault. Um, So that's why we know we're collecting skulls. Hence the title. Um, And the thing is, is Jonathan knows that destroying one of the skulls like his own will destroy the plans. Why doesn't he go destroy one of the, skulls that are in the vault oh well because like zurich explains that the whole reason you need the skull is because like that's what's going to keep the the soul in there um because you need the power of the soul just like you explained in the context setting but like as you explained in the context setting like the soul only is in there for like like there's an expiry date on that soul uh (laughs) it's only in there for like five years so like i presume it doesn't matter on the old skulls but it needs to be there like he needs jonathan's skull because he hasn't done the soul capturing yet yeah but kenneth sure was just killed sure i suppose yeah anyways and there's no like oh we need to destroy the shrunken heads to like release a spirit or anything like that there's nothing like that but anyway, so um, Jonathan threatens to shoot himself in the head. Um, he has a little bit of a scuffle with Zutai, and then Lieutenant Jeff uh, shows up to um, be the hero of the story. He has a scuffle with Zutai, who then <laughs> falls on an open fire and explodes. Yeah, for reasons that are unclear. Yeah. So then Jeff goes to scuffle with Zurich, and then it's revealed that Zurich's Zurich, Emil Zurich, was the Swiss agent on that expedition back in 1873. And he's not, like, mysteriously alive. It's actually Zurich's head on a Givarroan's body. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just, like, sewed on. Yeah. And also dead. Like, yes. it's, it, they're all dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only way to fully destroy them is uh, by pricking them with the poison that they've been pricking the drakes with. And then removing the head from the body. Yeah. So they managed to do that to Zurich after a bit of a chase scene. And then Zurich uh, crumbles into dust. And then that's the end. 
Well, and then and then he crumbles into dust except for his skull. Ah, uh, yes. And then there's some voiceover eighty yard in because an executive was concerned because the, the four skulls weren't wasn't clear. And someone says, "Ah, the fourth skull." Yes. Even though, like, nobody in the movie establishes that having like four skulls or something is some kind of like prophetic thing that needs to happen. But yeah, they they're like, "Ah, now we have four skulls," so that yes. the title is accurate. So something I, I didn't mention that I thought was neat is they have those three skulls mm-hmm. in the vault. Lieutenant Jeff has his lab man come in and do fingerprint analysis on them. And they do find fingerprints. And um, they're like normal fingerprints, except that there's a skull imprinted where the print should be, mm-hmm. which is a really neat thing. Um, and it's on all three skulls and they do research about what that means. And I, I don't know if what they well, said so is accurate about like, I assume that that was made up yeah. like for the movie, I mean, but basically what's going on here is that like, while Emil Zurich is, you know, immortal because he's a head sewn to a body, um, Zutai is also immortal because the cult of the headless man figured out a way to create immortality by essentially like doing the shrunken head procedure to just like straight up a person. And the reason why Zutai has his like mouth sewn shut is that this immortal undead person doesn't need food or air. So to prove it, they sewed his mouth shut. So he's got the skull fingertips and he's basically going around doing all the dirty work, which is why it's all his fingerprints on the skulls because they're the ones putting the skulls in the vault. Yeah, but I thought it was neat. Yeah. That they were skulls on fingerprints. Yeah, it's neat. It's a little weird detail. Yeah. Um, I definitely agree with you that there's some neat ideas here. Like, basing a horror movie around Javaro culture is cool. And they did, you know, some research here to have it not just be, like, some generic... Like, they weren't calling it voodoo or something. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, they were doing the research to have, like, the real terminology... Um, I think the reveal of how Emil Zurich has been kept alive all this time has, like, a cool weird horror to it where it's like that's so bizarre and and i think that's a neat little detail ultimately uh, this movie has what i'm calling the mummy problem oh yeah so the mummy both in terms of uh the 1932 the mummy but also its sequels of a person doing bad deeds and those bad deeds coming back to haunt the person Mm. And us as a modern audience being like, yeah, but those deeds were bad, though, and they deserve what's coming to them. Oh, sure, sure. Like, the fact that, like, essentially what's happening here is a punishment for, like, colonialism or whatever. Yeah. And so it's like, well, aren't the Givero in the rights here on terms of this? I mean, I suppose, like, what we're supposed to be taking away from it, though, is that, like, yeah, but there's no reason to, like, keep killing people's descendants forever, like, like in total, you, though, that's like five possible people killed versus an entire tribe. No, 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 for sure, okay. for sure. I'm not saying that it's okay to massacre people. I'm saying that, yeah. like, the reason these guys are the bad guys is because, like, our cultural values are supposed to be that you don't visit the sins of the father on the child. Um, sure. So, like, there's, like, like, Jonathan Drake didn't murder a bunch of people. He's just some guy. Yes. Um, so for full transparency to uh, the listener, we are recording this after Queen Elizabeth has passed away. And since 
she's passed, there's been a lot of discussion around how responsible Elizabeth should be held for the acts of the British government. Yeah. And like the British Empire, both in terms of colonialism, but also things that happened during her reign and how to grapple with that legacy of hers. Um, And so watching this movie, um, that's definitely in my mind about like generational wealth, for example, because the Drake family is obviously very rich. Sure. And um, not that they explicitly gained that wealth because they massacred this village, but uh, they've still done horrible things to that past. Yeah, you're you're saying that that absolutely the sins of the father should be visited on the children because fuck white people, and I'm saying that <laughs> the position of the movie is that these guys are the bad guys yeah. because these characters are innocent and have not done anything wrong that we know of in their own lives. Yeah, and so I'm trying to like discuss the what I'm calling the mummy problem mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of how a movie cuz it's like that movie we watched that was like Black Moon right. where, you know, it's a horror movie if you're concerned about your black slaves rising up against sure. you. Right? I think it's it's not as bad as the mummy problem in the sense of in the mummy like like these are the people who disturbed his tomb. Yeah. Right? It's just 10 years later or whatever. I also like it's a smaller part of the story. Like in the mummy it's like you know, yes, Imhotep is in the right to not like British people for plundering tombs. But ultimately his plan is to take a woman who doesn't know him and like use mind magic to turn her into a reincarnation of his old girlfriend so that he can like non-consensually marry her. So like (laughs) that's not really connected to whether white people are culpable for like ancient atrocities. Whereas like this, it's like, no, the Drake family was definitely in the wrong. Although the story is still really confused. Colonel Drake massacred that village as like retribution for the fact that they had kidnapped and killed this Swiss guy on his team, Uh, which by the way, I think it's hilarious that like, so at one point, like the clue. He doesn't go by a different name. No. So the clue that like leads us to find out that Emil Zurich is the Swiss agent is that like Jeff asks the police department to like run a check on Dr. Emil Zurich. And instead of finding that, like, oh, yeah, he's a professor at this university or whatever, they're like, there's no records of this guy existing at all, except for a Dr. Emil Zurich 120 years ago who died. And I love that that means that, A, he's not going by a fake name, which you'd think he would, and that, B, like, he hasn't established any kind of paperwork yeah, he's his, like currently he doesn't, teaching at the university. Right, like he doesn't get a paycheck. He doesn't have a deed on his he house. He owns a house. Right, like there's like, no <laughs> paperwork for him at all. Also, that his name isn't a fake name, which means his name really is Emil Zurich, and he's Swiss. And he was friends with the family who have this curse Right, so like them, Jonathan Drake know about. knows about the curse, but he didn't know that the death of the, like the Swiss agent who died, who set off all the chain of events, was named Emil Zurich. So like... He has Zurich's the friend, a friend of the family, and they don't know. Anyways, and also that like Zurich's been alive this whole time, killing them this whole time, is a friend of the family. Has he been a friend of the family this whole time? Like, have they not <laughs> noticed that this guy's been around forever? Anyways, so 
the thing that's a bit confused here is like Zurich's death led to Drake massacring that village as retribution. Now, that is perhaps a disproportionate response. Perhaps. <laughs> I perhaps with heavy scare quotes. Yeah. But like they wronged him, so he is he got some revenge, right? That's the initial set of events. And then to get revenge on Drake for the wrong he visited on them, they're cursing his family. But like the instrument of the curse is Zurich, the dude who was killed. And so it's like, it's really weird because like, you're, you know, Sarah, you're making this very cogent argument about like, yeah, but the Drakes are in the wrong. So don't they deserve this horrible fate? Like, isn't Zurich right actually? But then it's like, but does Zurich believe he's right? Or is he just like a, like, is he being forced into this? Yeah, there is implications from like lines he has that he, it's not something he wants to do. He's just here to do it. Yeah, once he's able to kill all the Drakes, then his soul will get to rest in peace. And that basically he's been like used by the tribe as the instrument of their revenge. Yeah. So like... I guess what I'm saying is that, like, there's definitely some moral confusion in this movie over, like, who is in the right. But I think that while we can all agree that massacring indigenous people is wrong, I hope that we can also agree that, like, holding people's souls on earth after they're dead so that they can serve as the unwilling instruments of your revenge against the descendants of people who wronged you when those descendants don't really have anything to do with the wrong that was visited upon you, that's maybe like why that puts you in villain territory. You're in villain <laughs> territory. You may not be in like colonial atrocity territory, but you're in like <laughs> villain territory, you know? All that being said... Ultimately, yeah, my, my conclusion or the point I was trying to make with um, the mummy problem mm. is that, yes, this movie's message and ethos is confusing at best, but there are neat effects for the makeup, um, except for perhaps Zutai's face and stuff. It looks a little weird. And for the uh, the head props and like the shrinking process, yeah, the it all looks really neat. I think they did a fairly good job. Yeah, the shrunken heads look pretty good. I'll agree. And the skull fingerprints. I thought they, that was neat and I liked the process and it was cool. I think that probably the issue that we're identifying here with what you're calling the mummy problem um, comes from the fact that like this movie's conflict between having like a neat story idea about using Jivaro culture as like the basis for a horror movie and then like it's plot execution being really like like boring and humdrum yeah. right like the plot of this movie is just meh there's hardly any like moments that really are worth getting worked up over everything's very by the numbers and I think that conflict between those two things makes me think a lot of uh the writer Bill Finger uh, who wrote a lot of Batman comics mm. um, back in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. He's the co-creator of Batman. And the way that he wrote a lot of comic book stories, because he was having to write a lot of stories every month, right? You're on a deadline. You got to pump this stuff out. Is he had like, if he read an interesting fact, 
he would write it down on a little index card. And then when he was stuck on like an idea for a story, he would just rifle through the index cards and be like, oh, that's neat. And that's kind of what this movie feels like is someone, you know, read a Nat Geo article and was like, oh, that's a cool idea. No one's really done a horror movie about trunken heads. Let's do that. And then just kind of welded that onto like some very stock characters, a very stock plot. I think the reason why there's that moral confusion is I don't think Orville Hampton who wrote this was maybe grappling with all of the implications Mm. of the like milieu he decided to use for his story so much as just using it as like cool flavor. Sure. Right. I would agree. Um, And I think, I mean, I'm not sure. I don't know. Maybe there's more to it than that because Orville Hampton went on to be nominated for an Oscar for a movie about like interracial romance. So maybe he has more social conscience than I'm like giving him credit for, but at least from what we are seeing from this particular example. Yeah. It it really feels like, you know, we have this neat flavor, but then what we use it for is a movie where, yeah, we have like all the standard poverty row movie problems, um, characters who just kind of, bounce back and forth between a limited number of locations, lots of circular conversations that waste time. And also like all of the characters take forever to put two and two together. Like you're Lieutenant Jeff Rowan and you're on the case. Here are the facts that are presented to you. So this guy, Kenneth Drake, he was worried about shrunken heads. So he called his brother to be like, I'm worried about shrunken heads. And his brother told his niece, his niece called you, you showed up to discover that Kenneth Drake was dead and a shrunken head was found outside his window. And then at the funeral, they discovered that the head had been removed from the body, a thing you need to do in order to shrink heads. Meanwhile, Uh, A close family friend who happens to be around when you arrive is a dude whose, like, entire deal is studying shrunken heads. I'm never going to talk to this man. Right, like, so... To the point where someone else in the movie brings it up, like, why haven't you talked to him yet? Yeah, then the brother shows up and gets attacked by a poison used by the same tribe that shrinks heads... And it's like, yeah, it's it's like three quarters of the way through the movie before Jeff's like, maybe I should talk to Zurich, who we already know is the bad guy. Like, okay, on the one hand, I think Henry Daniel is having a decent amount of fun playing Zurich. Mm-hmm. He's a good actor. Yeah, and that, um, you know, he's probably one of the best actors in this movie. And so I enjoy having scenes with him in them so that we can enjoy his hammy villain performance on the other hand when you have a mystery story and you've told the audience the answer to the mystery it makes it really frustrating when it takes the heroes forever to figure it out because it makes the heroes look like morons because the audience is just sitting there waiting for the heroes to catch up to where the audience already is And it's, yeah, it's not like even if they hadn't shown us the audience that Zurich was the bad guy, that we wouldn't have put two and two together. Like it was 16 minutes in. Yeah. And it's like, 
okay, cool. I know exactly what's happening. Yeah. I figured out that Zurich was the, I, I wasn't, I didn't know that he was the Swiss agent, but I figured he was like a descendant or related or something. Cause his last name is Zurich, you see. Yeah. Which is a city in Switzerland. Yeah. And it's like, how much faster would the characters in Dracula have like figured out that the count was perhaps at the source of their troubles if his name was like Jack Vampire? I mean, in a way, it sort of is, isn't it? (laughs) Speaking of um, the performances, I'll say that aside from Henry Daniel, I thought Edward Franz gave a pretty decent performance as Jonathan. Yeah. Um, He at least is able to act as if he, the character, believes the story that he's in, you know? And it is neat to see these older actors. Yeah, it definitely was. um, All of these movies of teenagers. It was definitely a reminder to me of like, oh yeah, there used to be a time when old people were like the main characters in movies, which we just also just don't have anymore today. Yeah, it seems. Um, Everyone else in the cast, I think, ranges basically from meh to bad. Valerie French, who plays Allison, is outright (laughs) bad. I I don't know about outright bad, but her accent is very distracting. She um, was born in London, raised in Spain, did university in England, then started her film career in Italy, and then came to Hollywood. So her accent's from all over the place. I just feel like she's struggling throughout the movie to make it seem like her character has more than two brain cells. Yeah. To rub together. Well, she doesn't have very intelligent lines. No. And so it's like, I'm sitting here being like, is is Valerie French a bad actress? Or is she such a good actress that she looked at how poorly written her character was and was like, the only way to make this work is if I play her like she's a moron. <laughs> like, <laughs> No, I think the script is just bad. Because <laughs> everyone turns out to be a moron. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's move on to ranking. So I did want to share, um, before we rank this movie, uh, the tagline for this movie from the poster, Oh, um, because I'm using it as my primary piece of evidence to say that this is a horror movie, because uh, t- <laughs> it was marketed as such. The tagline for this movie was, written, produced, and directed to scare the daylights out of you, which I don't think this movie gets anywhere close to doing. No, that's false advertising. Um, so I, uh, will just point out before we dive fully into ranking that, um, movies like The Mummy, The Mummy's Tomb, even Son of Frankenstein, all better handled the idea of a descendant grappling with the legacy of their ancestors. Agreed. Um, so I was looking pretty dang low. I am also looking pretty dang low. Okay. So I... How low can you go? (laughs) my eyes went straight to black moon at 210 because like i said a similar Mm. idea of like oh no like where's the horror coming from i will say so that i don't forget this thought that if we're talking about like ideas of like modern uh families grappling with the colonial histories of their ancestors uh la llorona did this idea much better yeah. Um, which makes sense because that was like a Mexican film, like from within that milieu, right? As opposed to just like borrowing someone else's culture for flavor. Absolutely. Now, I felt that Black Moon was a better put together movie 
than this one. Yeah. Because at least Black Moon didn't feel boring. Black Moon only has like one location, but that's sort of the point. Like the yeah. thing that they're trying to do in Black Moon is make you feel the like ever tightening noose of the um slave revolt. Right. Yeah, <laughs> essentially. Um, but if you do want to hear more about Black Moon, that's episode 46. So a long time ago. So we started looking down from Black Moon and I stopped. So my floor is 230. Okay. Um, the 1913 Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Because the reason I chose there is because right above that is The Monster Walks, mm. which is a pretty terrible movie. And I just felt like, well, the... Uh, the Four Skulls of Jonathan Drake, I will give it at least that it manages to be a full-length film, so it can <laughs> go above the shorts. <laughs> it has a base-level competence. Yeah, yeah. So where were you looking? Basically in the same area, Sarah. Oh. Um, I looked for Curse of the Faceless Man, okay. uh, which is another Edward L. Kahn movie that disappointed us. Um, I liked this better than Curse of the Faceless Man. Um, Curse of the Faceless Man, if you don't remember it, is the one where it's the guy who died in the like eruption of Vesuvius who comes back as like a plaster monster and like doesn't move if you're looking at him essentially. <laughs> and then like yeah. ends the movie by like walking into the sea and there's like a narrator who explains everything to you as you're watching it. Yeah. I feel like this was better than that because like, I think that this at least has some interesting ideas and makes some sense if you're not thinking about it too hard and you can just like sit and enjoy it and it's not so bonkers. On the other hand, while it is not bonkers enough to be as bad as Curse of the Faceless Man, it was also not bonkers enough to be as good as Scared to Death. Mm. which you actually brought up earlier in the discussion of like that movie's fun to watch. Uh, this movie really isn't. This movie's just kind of a big bag of nothing for me. And so I made my ceiling um, scared to death and my floor curse of the faceless man. So 222 to 225. So very much in the same area here, better than monster walks, worse than black moon. And I was kind of thinking right below scared to death is Frankenstein's daughter which is a movie where we have a female monster played by a male stuntman because no one bothered to tell the makeup guy that the monster was a lady. Yeah, it's a bit more incompetently made. Whereas like Four Skulls of Jonathan Drake, clearly someone told the makeup man that Zutai isn't white. So he, you know... <laughs> did some makeup on the white guy playing like you know what i mean like yeah so i'm kind of feeling below scared to death above frankenstein's monster yeah i think that's as good a place as any awesome so entering the list at the new number 223 is the four skulls of jonathan drake from 1959 directed by edward l Kahn. oh we should have done 224 because then it's four mm. and then four skulls no this well, is fine the position will change soon enough <laughs> If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, ScreamScenePodcast.com. There you can find links to the many episodes that we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at ScreamScenePodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore ScreamScene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can... Subscribe to the show using our RSS feed, and you can help the show out by leaving us a rating or a review. 
tell your friends about us, whether that's online or in person. Word of mouth is the best way for us to grow our audience. And if you want to help us out uh, financially, you can do that by heading on over to patreon.com slash podcast, where you can sign up to be a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Your contributions help go to paying like our hosting fees um, and also just, you know, help us out with taking the time out of our busy schedules to do these episodes, which hopefully will now be back on a regular schedule after a very disruptive summer. Uh, patrons at the $5 and $10 level get access to regular bonus content, and all patrons get to vote on our monthly horror-adjacent bonus episodes, uh, which for September is going to be London After Midnight, the famous Lost film mm-hmm. starring Lon Chaney. And you may say, Ben, how are you reviewing a Lost film? And I say, this is why it's a bonus episode. <laughs> So if you want to be part of those polls, head on over to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast. So Ben, what are we watching next week? Well, Sarah, uh, we're going on a trip to Japan for a while. Uh, We got some Japanese films lined up uh, all in a row. Next week's film is going to be Kaiden Kagami Gafuchi, uh, which I say because we've already done Kaiden Kasane. Gafuchi. Okay. Uh, so that was Ghosts of Kasane Swamp. This is Ghosts of Kagami Pond. <laughs> uh, and this is directed by Masaki Mori, who directed the 1956 version of Yatsuya Kaiden. Okay. So that's going to be the first in a number of Japanese horror films we're going to be watching in a row. All right. Well, we will see you then, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.